Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're going to be taking an interesting journey on our show. We're actually going to be seeing through the eyes of a physician, a physician who's been in medicine for many years and has really walked in a number of settings, some in intimate contact with First Nation peoples. He's based currently in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area. His name is David Miller, MD. David, it is great to have you with us on today's show. Well, it's a real privilege to uh, be able to connect with you. Knowing we do have a lot of Native people living in our area, we're right on the edge of Cherokee Nation here. You and I have uh, gone back a number of years. We've rubbed shoulders in a variety of settings. I think you and I first met, David, when you were a physician at Uchi Pines Institute there in Alabama, an institute that actually takes its name from uh, uh, a tribal, I believe, reference to an area where you were practicing. Is that right? That, that's correct. I think one of my patients down that way who was a historian had thought there were around 3,000 of the Uchi Indians who maybe still lived out this way uh, on the Creek Nation, he thought. So you've got this uh, very interesting background, and it's one that has taken you from an institution like Uchi Pines that, for those who've listened uh, for many years to American Indian Living, we've had guests from Uchi over the years who've talked about their natural healing me- uh, methods, to more conventional medical settings. You've worked in both uh, arenas, correct? That's correct. And, of course, you know, my training at uh, uh, in, in family medicine was, uh, you know, down a little different track as the years have gone on, you know, how medicine has made big changes. No, most definitely. So kind of bring us up to speed. Tell us a little bit about the things that shaped you as a physician, because I think there's so much to learn from uh, really your fascinating life story. So first of all, a little bit about your uh, your early childhood and, and how you developed these aspirations to become a physician. You know, I uh, was privileged to... Uh to be born actually in the southwest here in northwest Texas, uh, North, North Texas, Wichita Falls area. I'm sure it must have been named after the Wichita Indians, one of the Plains group. And um, lived there. Family history uh, goes back even to uh, granddad, uh, 1877, in the North Texas area. And uh, when my father, who was in the Navy, was uh, sort of on... Uh, he described himself on a ship where he uh, felt like he was going to take his appendix out with uh, out the aid of an anesthetic when his drill malfunctioned, and he ended up being transported from the ship by seaplane, etc., to get back to a hospital in Hilo, Hawaii. It was there that that he um, felt like his life was spared, uh, partly because of the faith of the people who were caring for him. He had a nurse that uh, somehow had real interest in this hospital with a 12-hour shift of providing spiritual care where she'd pray for him and she'd see these doctors that would go out and whisper in the hallway and they didn't think he was going to survive because of him losing 30 pounds or 40 pounds or whatever it was and and uh, he kind of got the message uh, when he'd see the tears in her eyes but she prayed with him and he knew this woman somehow awakened it you know when a person's on the deathbed they always used to say there's no atheist in the foxholes and I think he was going through some of that experience there and uh 
he kind of made a vow to God, boy, you know, if you'll spare my life, you know, I'm going to find out what this is all about. And so he became a Christian, ended up at a college in Southern California, where he, uh, he ended up marrying my mother, who was a, a nurse, and uh, actually the school nurse there, and uh, had been through training at uh, Loma Linda University at that time. Um, must have been the 1930s and the, sort of the pre-antibiotic era, and I think that was one of the reasons they didn't think my father was going to survive even during those days. But mm. she had some training, and during those years, there was quite a bit more of the natural remedies and so forth that were used uh, even in the treatment. But her background is a in nutrition and, and and some of these little remedies. She was kind of like our primary care provider when I was a kid, and we'd have a sprained ankle or a you know sore toe or whatever. She was great at saying, well, here's what you need to do. Sit right here on the edge of the bathtub, and you get this little bucket of water. You push this one up under the uh, warm faucet, and we'll have this one with ice in it, and you stay in that warm water as long as you can, and then we'll put a little more warm in it, and we'll get you put in that cold water and back and forth. And, uh, you know, pretty soon that foot couldn't tell whether it was hot or cold or whether <laughs> it was, uh, you know, hurting or what, but it, it was pretty amazing how it helped with, uh, with pain and healing. And I later realized, you know, a lot of the physiology of, how the body works, you know, that there's some real rationality to a lot of these simple remedies that mm-hmm. have been passed on for, mm-hmm. for generations. I mean, that's such a great story, David, and it, and it brings me right back to uh, a patient I saw yesterday. We were actually talking about these very kind of treatments. He was having problems with diabetic neuropathy, nerve problems from diabetes, and we were instructing him on those very same kind of treatments, three minutes in the in the warm water with a thermometer, making sure it wasn't more than 104 degrees because his sensation was impaired from the diabetes, and then into that right. uh, cool water for 30 seconds. So you grew up with those kind of treatments. Yeah, she was kind of like our primary care provider. There were a few times where we took a few uh, medicines along the way, but uh, not too many. You know, mm-hmm. she wasn't, that wasn't her first course. I think her idea, even with antibiotics, was, you know, hey, if uh, we get to one of these life-threatening situations where we really need one, you know, we might pull it out. But she had some real skepticism, I could tell, over some of the, you know, of course you see some of these ads on TV these days where the pharmaceutical industry will even kind of, you know, talk about a, all the glamorous things this product will do for you, and then it'll, of course, sort of finish by saying, but it could do this and this and this and this, and it might even kill you, but ask your doctor to try it for you. you know? uh-huh. I had patients who said they'd see those ads and think, ooh, I don't know if I want to get any closer, you know. So right, right. a lot of people are interested in something of a more natural, and how could we avoid some of the hazards that are inherent, you know, in so many of the pharmaceuticals. Well, you know, one of the other places where you and I, of course, connected was in Oklahoma, and I know I'm getting ahead of your story, but right. it, it reminds me of this point you're making because I was working there at uh, in an institution called the Lifestyle Center of America. We were doing a lot of work with a variety of, of tribes there, and I remember as we talked with our Native American patients they would tell us as we were doing more of these natural therapies, herbal therapies, uh, diet therapy, exercise, they would say, well, this is like our traditional way of of dealing with health. Uh, This is like our traditions, not giving all these uh, drug medications. So this background that you had growing up is very similar to what many First Nation peoples tell me is their background as well. So you grow up in this kind of environment. Did that plant the seeds early on of you uh, aspiring to a career in medicine? You know, um, it may very well have played into that. I had an older sibling who had gone to college and, you know, had taken uh, 
taking a biology major, and you know, there's a tendency for siblings to kind of follow in their uh, other siblings' uh, footsteps. And so I, I did have a ninth grade uh, biology teacher who said, well, you know, you have an aptitude for this biology stuff, you know, if you uh, want to. Uh, and so I kind of had thought, well, maybe a biology teacher or something along those lines initially. But as time went on, it seemed to me that uh, that the direction of the medical line made sense from the perspective of, you know, there's great needs uh, for people who have health challenges. I mean, as we all realize in a world, especially Oklahoma, we haven't done real well when it comes to uh, to being on the healthy scores. You know, we've, we're kind of down at the bottom of the barrel as far as America's health score goes. And so um, trying to uh, figure out uh, ways to serve people, uh, you know, has been one of the things that has driven us. Well, I mean, it's an exciting story for me because I've seen it firsthand over the years. And one of the things I always appreciated about you, David, is it seemed like you had a real compassion and a care for your patients. Did patients immediately sense that? Would people tell you that they sensed that you had a real interest in them? You know, um, I think so. Uh, I got feedback. And, of course, doctors like to get feedback from their patients. And uh, you don't always get direct feedback. I remember when we were in training, you might have had the same professor at the medical school that said, you know, when you go in to do an exam on this patient, uh, you know, you may be thinking you're doing the exam, but the truth of the matter is they're doing an exam on you to see if they're going to come back and see you again. You know? <laughs> so I think being able to connect with people is real crucial. And I think the Lord has, has given me a special knack to do that. And uh, I think I, uh, some of that I think I remember gaining even in, in my home that I had the fortune to be in where mom and dad you know, had a real, a real uh, welcoming, hospitable place where they would bring visitors in to spend, um, you know, a meal with us, like uh, after church or something like that. And and when they would sit in the living room, I found that very interesting to see these adults interacting with each other and to, to hear how they responded. And the stories that they told, you know, always, uh, you know, I always latched onto that. Now, we're speaking about some of the, the medical-related things that shaped your early life history. You're talking about your family of origin. You told me a story, actually, as we were preparing uh, to do this interview, that I know has resonated with people in uh, a variety of walks of life. You were not the oldest in the family. You were the youngest. Is that right? I was actually the fourth of five kids. Okay. And you told me that there were some circumstances around your mom's pregnancy with you that maybe from some onlookers would have said you weren't even destined to uh, to start life. Tell, tell us about that part of the story. Well, you know, it was, uh, I sort of see it almost what we'd use the word miracle, you know, uh, that uh, I'm even here because, you know, even... Uh, uh, in the 1950s, you know, even diseases like lupus were just recently being discovered and what we do for them. And my mother's health was real poor, apparently, during that time. My brother just ahead of me, you know, her weight had dropped precipitously. And apparently one of these autoimmune diseases had gripped her. And in the process, when, when she was pregnant with me and the doc who was caring for her, he must have felt like this wouldn't be wise to go ahead with the pregnancy that he recommended a therapeutic abortion at that point. And so in the process, she um, she was a woman of faith and believed, you know, God had seen her through this far in life, and uh, this was not the direction she was inclined at all. As a matter of fact, the way she 
working as a nurse, you know, in hospitals and clinics and so forth, knew a little bit more on the inside track how the medical world operates and that, you know, if a woman uh, was in, in um, labor, she would be, um, you know, brought in whether they uh, respected what she did during her prenatal years or not. So she kind of waited till the end of the pregnancy to show back up. And apparently, according to my sister, she was actually in labor when she came to see him again. And, of course, he wasn't pleased with her decision to carry this pregnancy to term. But uh, the Lord blessed and, and uh, a nine pounds and 13 ounces uh, of weight came through. And uh, it, it, uh, it must have been that mom must have been a forgiving soul because I think my middle name was named after the first name of this uh, obstetrician. Oh, really? <laughs> That is that's an interesting story. So, uh, one of the things I'm taking away as I'm as I'm listening to what you're sharing is sometimes, at least in the medical world, some things may seem to be black and white to someone who doesn't have much medical background. You're not making a case for disobeying a doctor's instruction, but you are saying that there is something um, greater than necessarily. Uh, a single physician's opinion, and uh, there's ways to get second opinions in the medical world, and for those people of faith, there's ways to get second opinions from a, a higher power. We might call it the Creator, we might call him God, but uh, it sounds like that's what drove your mother to carry. Yeah, uh, and there's no question that she she had that she had a powerful influence in the home, uh, you know, with her faith. Uh, that was anchored in those kind of beliefs, and I, I, of course, she, she, I don't think ever regretted her decision, and uh, of course, I certainly haven't either. <laughs> so. uh-huh. well, well, David, it's a it's a fascinating background. We're gonna we're gonna talk some about your journey in medicine, but more practically, at least for the listeners, as, as engaging as your story is, we want to talk about some of the things you've learned over the years about simple strategies that people can use in their own lives that can make a difference. And so uh, I think all the listeners can relate. We're talking with someone who has firsthand experience with these topics, a living experience, and it started really even before your birth, where someone believed that there were uh, some ways beyond the wisdom of na- of medicine that can actually make a difference, and that's why you're here today, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. we got to step away just for a moment. I'm talking with Dr. David Miller. He's an MD, a physician who is currently practicing in Oklahoma. He's uh, lived a- an amazing life. He's impacted thousands and thousands of people in Alabama and Oklahoma working at centers that really have valued the very same things that First Nation peoples have valued for decades. We're going to come back with some amazing insights that can make a difference to your health. Don't go away. I'm Dr. DeRose. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical unit responsible. 
respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose. I'm an MD. So is my guest, Dr. David Miller. So two Davids who are both MDs. We uh, shared a common experience in Oklahoma over the years, and now we're sharing on the air. David, you've got an amazing life story. You uh, brought us up to speed a little bit. For those who are just joining us, uh, mother recommended to have a therapeutic abortion when she was pregnant with you, went ahead and brought you up in a home where she, as a nurse, valued natural remedies, hydrotherapy, simple treatments, and you're brought up in this environment, you uh, go through school, you catch this uh, vision of becoming a physician, and uh, did you end up at Loma Linda University yourself for medical school? I I did uh, uh, go to Loma Linda University, that's correct. And then from there, you went to Florida, is that right, to begin a family practice residency? That's correct. I uh, actually uh, signed up for a family practice residency at Florida Hospital in uh, Central Florida, and during that time, my initial plan was to go ahead and take the full three-year residency, but it was in my second postgraduate year that it seemed like, even though we had thought of possibly overseas mission work and various other things for a life career to use our medical skills, we uh, seemed to get redirected to far eastern Alabama. And uh, during that time, we visited UT Pines Institute. And during that time that we were up there on an elective, actually from the family practice program, where I was given credit if I would kind of write up a little paper uh, on my experiences there uh, for the hospital, you know, of what I had learned during this time. And prior to that, during my medical school training, I believe it's at the School of Health at Lumberland University, Drs. Calvin and Agatha Thrash, who were the founders of UC Pines Institute, they were two physicians in medical practice in the Columbus, Georgia area, who kind of got a vision along this line of doing something along more natural lines and uh, started a little fledgling institution outside there in east out southeast Alabama 
it's been consistently operating here for almost the last 50 years, I think. They'll be coming up on their 50-year anniversary maybe about in the year 2020. Wow. During that time that uh, I was there at the school, I did hear her talk, and after four years of having the experience of, as you know, there's a tendency to get into a lot of detail in medicine, and uh, like one of our anatomy teachers said, you know, it's not going to be the hardness of each thing you have to learn. It's just the sheer enormity of the stuff that's coming by you that you need to pick up, you know. Or, and so anyway, I remember hearing, it was kind of a refreshing uh, lecture to hear Dr. Agatha Thrash speak on simple treatments for common illnesses. Hmm. And I was thinking, wow, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of refreshing. I remember one time even thinking to myself when I was in school, well, you know, if I was just coming from largely a non-medical background, as in my mom being a nurse, my dad was a builder, and so I thought, well, if I learned something practical when I'm here in medical school that I could let my family know about, that I could kind of help them with their health issues. And so I remember thinking that thought somewhere early on, and then months and years went by, and and I never really thought, well, what was it I've come across that would really fit that category? And it wasn't kind of until I got to this lecture on simple treatments for common illnesses, I thought, well, now that's some practical stuff that it makes sense and is in harmony with the way the body works, and it could kind of help the system get back in health. And so it was during that time, uh, the transition to sort of jump off what would you consider traditional set up a practice in the community and, you know, have patients come into your office as the only way, and it was an inpatient facility that they had. They did have an outpatient facility as well. And in addition, that institution was equipped with a uh, community service facility that provided food service in the form of a restaurant and health food store in the city of Columbus where people could come and get the kind of food that was kind of geared to help promote health and longevity. Uh, that was kind of a, a, a nice thought. I thought, well, this is a good way you can connect uh, with your local community. The people uh, everywhere you turn is always neat. I always used to tell people that the room for improvement was the biggest room in the world. Wow. And it has no walls. <laughs> well, David, I mean, it's it, it's amazing as you're sharing some of this story because many of our listeners uh, have heard of Uchi Pines. We actually, I want to say a couple of years ago, I was speaking at a conference there at Uchi and uh, had an opportunity to interview many of the other speakers, many of the staff at Uchi Pines, so some of our listeners may recall those interviews. But what I find so amazing is your path and mine, not all that different in some respects, because I was a medical student once to also at that very same Southern California University, Loma Linda University. And believe it or not, you may not know all these details, but I too, not in residency but in medical school, did an elective, uh, spent a couple months away from the campus, and I went out to uh, two health institutions out east. One of them was a little place called Wildwood, and that was outside of uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And then I also spent a week there at Uchi Pines. And I was impressed by the very same thing that you're sharing, and that is that there were simple things, natural things that were making a difference. I remember a patient, you can maybe tell me some stories and our listeners some stories in a minute too, but one of the influential patients I first met at Wildwood when I ended up there was a fellow with such bad heart disease that he couldn't even walk across the tiny parking lot that was at that medical facility, very small parking lot, without having chest pain. And in three weeks, this guy's walking seven to eight miles a day 
with no chest pain. He's off most of his medications. And it reminds me of a patient I just saw the other day in my office. She's got terrible blockage in her arteries. And I was trying to tell her about these simple things that can make a difference instead of just having more and more surgeries to unblock the arteries. Were you seeing things like that too and hearing things about that uh, at this stage? Absolutely. That's the kind of thing that, of course, kind of thrilled us to see patients who could come. And Dr. Calvin Thrash was kind of our medical director of the inpatient facility. And we'd have a patient who would come with severe angina, as they call it, you know, chest pain linked with the coronary artery disease, our number one killer here in America still. He'd had a real interest in cardiology when he was in training there at Emory University. And he'd even worked with such a famous cardiologist as you know, Jay Willis Hurst and some of those guys that had been involved in the early days of cardiology and some of their, their editorial works and books that they've written. But anyway, he uh, was amazed to see, again, such a simple approach, a healthy lifestyle. And of course, a lot of this through the years has been reproduced by a number of the centers to show that there's some real science to this that uh, Dr. Ornish and Dr. Esselstyn and others, as you know, around the country that have demonstrated uh, very well that healthy eating, a total vegetarian uh, plant-based menu and uh, the value of exercise and, and uh, changing a few habits, uh, good night's sleep and, uh, and all those kind of things play a big role in a person's health far more than they, than they realize. Dr. Uh, Ornish one time at a medical conference, he was lecturing and said, you know, one of the things I realized, though, is my heart patient is what happens between their ears and their, their mind. They're, they're troubled at times, and it sends signals through their body, and boy, you know, that plays into their heart disease. That whole physical and mental, you can't really separate, uh, you know, when one's affected, the other's affected, as two go back and forth. And he was trying to think, what can we do to help solve that problem as well? No, I mean, this is such such a, a great illustration. And for those of you listening, you're saying, well, you know, come on, tell us a little bit more about this program. David, Dr. Miller has already mentioned some of the pillars that have been used, whether it's at Uchi Pines, whether it's Dr. Dean Ornish and his work in Northern California, whether it's Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn in his work up there at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. They're using these vegetarian diets. And in Indian country, David, I know sometimes the first response I get is, well, we're native, we eat wild game or have fish. But it's interesting, as, as I've talked and as I've looked at you know research on native diets that has been published by native researchers, very low animal product intake in many tribal populations before European contact. So when tribal people, uh, when, when First Nation people speak about their, uh, the three sisters, they're talking about things like corn and beans and squash. And so when I talk with, with Native Americans about heart disease, I say eat more like your ancestors. Eat more of these plant products because they really have shown in the research, haven't they, that eating more of those foods can help with a host of diseases. Oh, you know, I uh, just recently had opportunity to connect with the Director of Health and Human Services for the state of Oklahoma, Dr. Terry Klein. And, of course, he's been quite a crusader here himself, you know, practicing many of these principles to help with Governor Fallon to implement programs where we could have healthier businesses and healthier congregations and healthier, uh, I think it may even be the Choctaw Nation that was well represented at this recent luncheon that was at today in South uh, East Oklahoma, which, you know, had, had great health needs. Uh, you were very supportive of uh, pushing towards healthier ways. But 
One of the things that he pointed out, I think they have a program here in Oklahoma called the 3460, he was saying. And three things we could do that would help reduce four of the common diseases people die of by 60%. Wow. And uh, and it, it was pretty simple. You know, I think they were basically saying change your diet, get your exercise, and get out of Marlboro country, you know, or less leave leave the cigarettes and uh, tobacco alone. Those three simple things, of course, can be kind of profound if you're one of them that's sort of hooked on nicotine to try to turn it loose. But you can realize that a lot of people have done it, and it can be done. And through the years, you know, when you consider nearly a half million people a year still dying of tobacco-related illness, you realize these are enormous burdens. Wow, David, these these are sobering things, but they're simple things that can be done, at least conceptually. Of course, uh, we're not necessarily talking about ceremonial tobacco use. That's a whole other topic, but we're talking about addictive uh, nicotine practices. And listen, we got to step away just for a, a couple of minutes. Dr. David Miller, all kinds of interesting insights, practical insights, a whole bunch more to come. Don't go away. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We will be back with more. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke, sudden weakness on one side, or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute, because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give, advocate, volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. 
Dr. David DeRose with Dr. David Miller, fellow MD and primary care practitioner. Dr. Miller, you've been sharing with us your journey and some take-home points that can make a difference as far as the way we live. We talked about eating more fruits and grains and vegetables, those those plant foods, and how that can improve our health, whether it's heart disease or otherwise. And you mentioned some about the pain and suffering uh, with nicotine off the air. You, we started to talk about it uh, on air. Give us some statistics about the numbers of people affected by addictive tobacco use. And again, we're not talking about using some tobacco at a ceremony. We're talking about people who are habitually using a pack or two or maybe even more than that a day. What kind of numbers do we have in the public health community today? You know, I I don't have the most recent statistics right in front of me, but I know that in general, the last I had checked, over 400,000 people this year will die prematurely because of tobacco-related illness. It's an enormous burden on the public health sector. And uh, as you know, we all have to share in that burden that when others are going through it. I just remember a story of a 40-year-old fellow dying of lung cancer when I was a medical student. And I was thinking, well, you know, people come to the hospital because they want to get well. And can't we fix this guy? You know, I didn't understand enough to know that one out of 20 of the people, when they're first diagnosed with lung cancer, it's already beyond the stage where a surgeon or, you know, even chemotherapy or anything could uh, really reverse the trend. And so I could see the desperation in a wife and a husband that was going down quick and they didn't really have anything to offer him, you know. And I was thinking, boy, this is unfortunate. You can see these are examples where prevention is certainly better than the cure, and uh, especially when it comes to tobacco. No, no, and I'll tell you, it's uh, it's sobering for us as physicians because a lot of people do these mental calculations. They say, well, so it cuts so many minutes off my life per cigarette. Well, if I die at 75 instead of 85, that's okay. But like you illustrated, I mean, I've had patients who've died from smoking complications in their 20s and 30s, whether it was heart disease or lung cancer. So it doesn't just take those years off at the end of your life. It can take years off in the prime of life, can't it? Oh, absolutely. I I remember a fellow when I was in a family practice training who came in at, I recall, 27 years old, a basketball player, had a major heart attack during his uh, play in the game, ended up in the ICU, and while there, because of this clear through the wall of the heart uh, uh, damage, that he ended up with a big clot forming there that threw and caused him to have a massive stroke as well. All at the same time, you think only 27, you know, uh, sometimes we're apt to think that's going to be an old person's disease, or that's that's disease that only hits the men, and of course, the, the women are hit with it just as well, unfortunately. You know, these natural remedies are so powerful, you know, we're speaking about statistics. Many of my listeners have heard me talk about our recently published book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control. Uh, we talk about these very same things and how they adversely impact blood pressure, the very same things you mentioned. If you exercise, if you eat more of those plant foods, if you get away from the addictive tobacco use, your blood pressure is going to come down. But listen to this statistic. You may have heard this. The World Health Organization estimates that 9.4 million people die every year on this planet from just the heart and blood vessel complications of high blood pressure. So some of these diseases that you and I see every day or have seen every day in our clinical practices, uh, a lot of people think are innocuous, but we see the complications. We see the strokes. We see the heart attacks. And one message I'm taking away 
uh, and I'm speaking now to my listeners on American Indian living, one message I'm taking away from David Miller's story, his life history, is that just like he was impressed at an early age, uh, early in his career, medical career, that simple remedies were powerful, the way we eat, the way we exercise, avoiding addictive behaviors. Just like he saw this was powerful and it changed his life, caused him to go a different direction in his medical career, you're being called right now on this show to stop and listen because you can change your lifestyle today and it can make a huge difference. David, coming back to your story, have you seen it over the years? Have you seen people change their life dramatically just by making some simple changes? Oh, there's no question. There's no question. We used to even have uh, at the local medical center there in Columbus a stop smoking clinic that I participated in. It was called the five-day plan to stop smoking. It was uh, championed by actually a graduate from the same school that you and I attended there, Dr. Wayne McFarland. And, you know, like at that point, you know, millions of people were benefited uh, from some of those simple, again, simple things we've talked about here with the benefits of making a choice and the power that we do have the creators endowed us with this thing called choice, and it seemed like it must have been so crucial that even in you know the ancient history book called the uh, Scriptures, you could see God had to put a tree out there where they could choose uh, to even go the wrong direction and give them that opportunity if they needed to, or they wouldn't have been a real human. So I think choice is so crucial, and of course the choice to choose not to smoke, or the choice to make a healthy choice with what we're going to put on the plate. One thing about smoking, we could live without it. We could live without Jack Daniels. We could be across town from some of the, the temptations like that. But when it comes to groceries and food, we all have to have some kind of fuel to run on. And right. it's amazing to me how the creator could design a machine that would run on such a broad spectrum of different fuels and still chug down the road. Uh, some of them blow more smoke, you know, as you know, but, uh-huh. so to speak proverbially, but it's a pretty amazing uh, piece of equipment. Well, David, let's come back to your your story, your journey. You left uh, what some people would say, you know, kind of the traditional approach to medicine, completing a residency and then going on to a conventional practice. You go to this innovative health institution called Uchi Pines Institute. They're just outside of Columbus, Georgia, into uh, Alabama. And you actually worked there for quite a few years, didn't you? I was actually there on the staff for 25 years. Wow. And uh, it was after that that you came back to the Southwest, to Oklahoma, where you and I uh, reconnected there in the Ardmore, Oklahoma area. What was it that was involved in making a transition to what some people would say is a, is a more conventional practice environment? Well, you know, one thing that moved me back there was one of our, our mutual colleagues, you know, who had a practice that was kind of geared to Two things was his great love. One, natural remedies and lifestyle medicine, but also uh, critical care medicine. And so that was one area that I had never had near the experience in. And so during the years working with him in the critical care unit, I had a chance to see a lot of these patients coming in with acute heart attacks and uh, a lot more than I did in the rural setting where we had a center where people did come to an inpatient setting. But it was obviously far less uh, acute. Mm-hmm. They were there with chronic diseases. And, of course, it's that chronic disease burden that has about choked our health system down. So, anyway, going back to that setting, you know, was it certainly a change. It was a, a shocking change, but it was certainly an eye-opener, and it helped me to try to take some of the tools I had learned 
and try to help them, uh, you know, in the great state of Oklahoma. Now, I remember some years ago, we were talking about some of the things that you were doing in uh, the outpatient practice, as well as presumably in the hospital setting there in Oklahoma. And one of the things that I was struck with, I mean, it's been obvious as we've been talking that you're a a Christian and that faith is an important part of your uh, orientation to medicine. Some of my listeners, uh, they resonate with that. Others say, you know, don't talk with me about Christianity. You know, I, you know, have my tribal, uh, my traditional beliefs that my tribe has held for years. And, you know, uh, this is not a show where we're uh, exploring different religious philosophies. But I think one thing that we've noticed, both you and I, as we've worked with patients and many physicians have noticed this, is that this spiritual dimension is extremely important in health. Tell us a little bit about why you feel that interfaces with this whole issue of making healthy choices. You know, uh, as I speak to you, I'm actually talking to you on my cell phone. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, if I had this phone all ready to roll, but it had everything except the cord to charge it up, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to do much of this communicating with you today. But because I plugged it in to the charger and got juice in the battery, it's given me power to talk and go and, you know, all the other things that these little cell phones can do for you now. But I realize in a person's habits uh, and life that most all of us know better than what we do. We know it's good to get more exercise. You know, like some patients say, well, I saw one just in his home the other day here in Oklahoma, and uh, he says, Doc, about the only exercise I get is with my remote from my big screen TV here. And I said, well, I heard one say he was getting twice as much. He was using both thumbs on his remote. And I was thinking, now, we're going to have to do better than this if we're going to get the life-changing benefits. But I said, six minutes of exercise is linked with, you know, helping. Uh-huh. And, and yet to be able to do that, and then when it comes to the dinner table, we know that that second piece of pie at uh, Thanksgiving, maybe more than we or whatever other things that pull at us, uh, appetite-wise. And unfortunately, here in in Oklahoma, we have I've heard the reputation uh, a pharmaceutical rep told me of having more fast food restaurants than anywhere else in the nation per capita. Huh. And I was thinking, well, that's the last thing we really need if we're trying to dim the tide of cancer and heart disease and the things that are taking people down. But even though we know better, it's so hard to get it implemented in, in, the, in the lifestyle. And so that's where, personally, I have felt like, well, if I didn't have some help from the higher power, which, you know, the one who, who I see as the creator, God, who made me, and says, you know, I used to share some bubble verses sometimes in the office, just write them on a little script like it was a prescription for patients. And, and one of them says, well, without me, you can't do anything. And another one said, but with me, all things are possible. And I said, man, it looks like we better get this. Like this is going to be like the battery pack for my cell phone here. We don't get some juice to make this happen. I mean, I know I, I want to do better. I want to make good choices, but I'm I'm kind of a captive to this habit, you know. And I heard somewhere with tobacco it uses the same pathway in the brain that heroin does, you know, that it's an addiction. Boy, I don't think this is going to be an easy monkey to get off your back. And so you, we, we need help. I think even, you know, AA and various other groups uh, have realized, you know, you're not going to be able to do this by yourself. You're going to have to have some help outside of yourself to break through with a lot of these things. And I think this is at the crux uh, many uh, times with the obesity epidemic and everything else that we have to make these choices and then just stick with it with 
power. To, we need staying power for the long haul. No, I mean, it's a great message, and it's a, it's a controversial one. As some of you have been listening, you're saying, well, you know, why are they talking about uh, spirituality? We actually ran into the same problem, and some of you who are regular listeners may have heard me talk a little bit about this, but when we wrote the 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure book, we felt this topic was so important. We put a whole chapter in the book. Uh, the 14th chapter in the book is on spiritual health. And, uh, you know, trusting in a creator or a divine uh, guide, if you will. Um, some people have looked at that chapter, including a leading researcher at Duke. You may remember an interview I had with Harold Koenig. He thought it was the most transformative chapter in the book. Uh, others have said, you guys shouldn't have put that in there. It's a medical book, you know, a great book. But why did you have to throw in something that included the spiritual? And I think, David, you've uh, hit on it because all of us need help when it comes to changing our behaviors. And a lot of times it's people. It's our relationships with others, uh, especially those unsuccessful uh, relationships where we've got uh, ongoing trial, unforgiveness that the medical research has shown our problems. We've got a, a final segment coming up with Dr. David Miller. We do have to step away just for a couple of minutes, but we're going to come back with some final insights, things that he's gleaned over uh, some 30 years or more of medical practice, practical lifestyle things you can implement in your home that can make a difference for your health. Don't go away. We'll be back with more on American Indian Living. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand. And someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. <laughs> 
Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back for a final segment of today's edition of American Indian Living. My guest, Dr. David Miller, sharing with us from insights he's gained over the years as a physician, especially practicing in the area of more natural medicine. David, as we were uh, taking the break, you shared with me a story about someone who just had some remarkable results when he went through the program at Uchi Pines. Tell us about that particular individual. You know, Bob was a uh, salesman, high-pressure salesman, maybe selling for hotel uh, you know, equipment or something like that, and he came and was just sort of stressed out. He was a diabetic with blood sugars through the roof and on a bunch of meds, insulin, as I recall. Had trouble with his blood, uh, we say cholesterol and triglycerides, his blood fats had gotten so high. And he told us, he said, the reason I came to Uchipines, my neighbor recommended it to me, was because my dad just died of a heart attack at 60 years of age. And he says, and I'm like he is at 38, except he didn't smoke and drink, and but I do. And so uh, we kind of had our work cut out for us. And, and so I asked him one time if the stress of his work was kind of giving him trouble. He said, well... It's not uh, the telephone on my ear that's the problem. He says, it's the phone that's in the air. I said, what do you mean by that? And he says, well, when I get so angry with the way things are going, he says, I just lose my temper and I throw that phone and I feel like throwing it through the door. And so I could see all these refactors, you know, the uh, physical health, mental health, spiritual health was kind of all uh, stirred up together there for him. But, you know, we did nothing real fancy for Bob other than, you know, listening to his story and getting him started on some healthy lifestyle choices. We basically put him on a simple vegetarian diet. He actually brought his mountain bike up with him, and with the 200 acres of rural land, he cruised around, got some exercise more than he'd been used to. And um, with that uh, change and uh, leaving off his tobacco, kind of as I used to tell patients, get out of Marlboro country and stay away from Jack Daniels. You know, both of those are going to be good for you here. And so in the process, he was able to see a cholesterol of 363, as I remember, drop to 202 in 12 days. Wow. And I told him, I don't know that the medications would get it down that quick, Bob. And uh, so you could see that most people underestimate the power that uh, a plant-based diet will provide for people. So anyway, his triglycerides that had been at over 1,900 had plummeted down to the 400. It wasn't quite to the normal zone, but for 12 days, I think it was a great uh, encouraging picture. Mm -hmm. And uh, even his blood sugars as a diabetic had dropped from 225 down to around 125, you know, before his, his term had finished there with us. And uh, and he said, you know, we, of course, we're recommending eating a good breakfast, eat a good lunch, have about five hours between meals, don't get into snacks, drink plenty of water, uh, you know, and of course, mix the exercise and rest in. And, of course, he hadn't totally solved his frustration issues before his time was there. At one point, he said, well, you know, my sugar last night was 127, and I didn't eat any supper, just like you recommended, that a a big meal at night would raise my sugars for the next morning. Mm -hmm. And so I left that off, and you know what? My sugar came up to 131, and I was so riled up, I decided to go down to the Pizza Hut. Wow. (laughs) And so... 
I said, well, you should have told me. He said, you know, everybody has this thing called the dawn phenomenon. When they get up in the morning and, you know, the body kind of gets the boilers going and pumps a little sugar out to get the day going. And so even without eating, your sugars can rise a little bit. You've made such great progress. And, you know, it's hard for people sometimes to look at the big picture to know this uh-huh. is a long-term process of changing habits that we have We've kind of uh, developed, we've seen, you know, our mom might have been our first dietitian that we ever had, and uh, she made good choices for us. It could make a world of difference, but if she didn't, it could get us on the wrong track, and then we, in turn, make those choices along life's road that sometimes take us down, uh, not towards the path of health. No, I mean, it's so true, David. Uh, Some of us have an easier start in life, but all of us can reconnect with some of these simple things, and many of them, like we've said more than once on this show, are things that were valued by First Nation peoples for decades, for centuries, prior to European contact. You know, a lot of times, though, when people talk about natural therapies, They're really not thinking so much about changing their lifestyle completely, which you and I have seen is probably the single most powerful thing anyone can do. Right. But they want something simple that they can do for the sore throat or for the athlete's foot or for some other problem that has crept into their life. Have you found value to simple natural remedies in those settings as well? Yeah, there's no question that, I mean, even Dr. Calvin Thrash, who was an internist there at the Uchi Pines Institute, he used to say, no matter what causes this sore throat, a hot water gargle for five or ten minutes may do more to help relieve the pain and help blood flow to those tissues to help heal than any other remedy he knew of right off. You know, real simple things that could be done. And, of course, some have talked about, well, putting a lemon in it, you know, and that can uh, sometimes uh, change the pH there in the back of the throat and play a role so that some of those bugs, uh, you know, may not be able to flourish. And so about 97% of those sore throats are caused by various viral illnesses that will cause a runny nose and various other things uh, at the same time. In general, staying away from uh, the high sugar intake our, our menu in America tends to be so rich in, mm-hmm. will sometimes give your own white blood cells the ability to eat those germs better, and uh, your immune system is going to be working better, even with as little as six minutes of exercise a day, they say. So mm-hmm. you don't have to be an Olympic athlete or a super nutritionist to make a few simple changes that are, could so significantly impact your life for this world, and I think the one to come. Well, you know, David, what uh, is interesting to me about that natural remedy you mentioned, I think a lot of people have heard about the warm water gargles. Maybe they've been told to put the lemon in it or salt. But Dr. Calvin recommended someone gargle continuously for five or ten minutes. Was that his, uh, his recommendation? That was one of them. And another little simple device that I have personally found helpful and uh, one that we used uh, consistently with the patients that were there, even when they were in the inpatient setting, we frequently would use hydrotherapy and a heated whirlpool bath. That was one of the old standbys. And the person with a flu syndrome or, or other um, virus that hit them, you know, since we don't have scores of viruses that we know out there, we have no simple pill that we can give them and just zap that uh, completely away, you're dependent on your own immune response to kind of get on top of it. And so you think, well, what would speed this response up? And so a lot of these habits we've talked about play a role in kind of helping to build all your defenses, including that immune response. And so warming the body up, I've understood that you may have as many as 25 times as many antibodies 
to fight a virus in your bloodstream with the increased temperature of only one degree. So if you had a natural fever, it may be the creator's plan built into the equipment to warm it up a little bit so that you would be able to fight that virus better. Sometimes virus infections don't raise the fever much, and so put them in a warm bath for a few minutes. will even get the temperature up one or two degrees higher than the normal 98. If you even had it at 100 or 101, most people can tolerate that quite well, especially if you put a little cold cloth to the head. And uh, amazing, uh, I think it was one of those little treatments in a hot bath that impressed Dr. Agatha Thrash when she saw that done on her son up at that institution you mentioned earlier. And he had such a dramatic improvement the next day that she thought, wow, what happened to that cold he had? You know, just something as simple as putting him in that hot bath for a few minutes and a little cold to his head. And, and I think they wrapped around his neck one of these little heating compresses, they called it, which basically amounted to like a little strip of two-inch wide, little strip of sheet wrung out of cold water wrapped around the neck with a little strip of plastic around that and then a, a little strip of wool blanket or a little warm sock pinned around the neck and uh, because it would tend to increase blood flow to that whole area nature's ability to fight is going to of course go up considerably when you have those little troops we call white blood cells moving through the bloodstream to kind of uh, step in there and, and eat a germ. Wow David it's amazing uh, to just listen to some of the stories that you've had and, and learn from some of these simple uh, remedies. Uh, Yuchi Pines, of course, we've mentioned a number of times. Neither you nor I have any formal connection with Yuchi Pines at this point, but they still are seeing folks, uh, treating them with natural therapies. Uh, it's U-C-H-E-E Pines, if people want more information. And uh, before we go, our time is really just about out, but any final words of wisdom, final encouragement you'd like to give our listeners? You know, um, I, I would suggest for people who are interested in health, do what you know and continue to uh, love the resources that, uh, that are available, even like Dr. Dr. DeRose's book on high blood pressure and other things. These are, again, the common illnesses that so many people have and to, to provide useful information. What's so amazing is that some of the same basic remedies that are good to help fight high blood pressure, is good to help fight diabetes, is good to help prevent cancer, is good to help prevent heart attacks. No, it is so exciting, David, that we don't have to choose uh, a program to avoid a certain disease. We can just choose the best lifestyle. Thank you for making that point so eloquently in our show today. Our time has slipped away. Uh, all too soon. But listen, David, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. David Miller, uh, formerly with Uchi Pines, now making a difference in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose, as always, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.